If you have your Bible, please turn to the last book of the Bible. Today we begin the first of, Lord willing, 12 sermons in the book of Revelation. If you are at the prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, Pastor Brian announced that uh, I'll be preaching through this book, and immediately uh, the congregation was like, ooh, and I wasn't sure at the time if that response was curiosity or trepidation or excitement. I'll be the first to admit that this book, the book of Revelation, has puzzled me for years, even leading up to this very sermon. A survey said that Revelation is the book that church members want to hear preached the most because they don't understand it. The same survey said that Revelation is the book that pastors preach the least because they don't understand it. One pastor, oh, heads up. One pastor said that we tend to avoid Revelation because it's difficult, it's different, and it's divisive. It's a difficult book. Let me give you an example. If you look at Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2, you don't need to turn there, but there's this picture of a conqueror on a white horse. And some of the best scholars disagree about this verse. Some say, well, of course, this conqueror is Jesus Christ. And other scholars who would agree on pretty much everything else in the Bible, they say, no, it's not Jesus Christ. This is the Antichrist. Jesus Christ or the Antichrist? I mean, this is a difficult book. It's also a different book. So we're familiar with narratives like the Gospel of John, as Pastor Brian's been preaching through that. We're familiar with epistles, like Carson preached last week from 1 Thessalonians, but for whatever reason, books like Revelation are like a foreign country to us. And for those of us that do visit it, we usually read it once a year in our Bible reading plan, and we kind of read it, we shrug our shoulders, and then we wait to return to it until the next year. But Revelation is also a divisive book, so there's four common approaches to interpreting the book. It's going to get a little technical for a moment, so just bear with me. Those four approaches are, first, there's the preterist interpretation. It says that the book was fulfilled entirely or mainly in just the first century, so shortly after it was written. Then there's the historicist view that says the book is being fulfilled now. It's in chronological order throughout church history. Then you have the idealists. They say that the book is fundamentally symbolic, describing this spiritual battle between Christ and Satan. And finally, you have the futurist view, which says the book is yet to be fulfilled. So chapters 4 through 22, those are all yet to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled right before Christ returns. So four different views, very different. Which one is it? Personally, I take the approach of a combination of some of these views. So the preterist view, it helpfully applies the book to the first audience. That's important because it was written to seven churches. But that view misses the clear visions about the future, final judgment that is yet to come. You have the historicist view, and that ends up applying the prophecies of Revelation primarily to Western church history. I think that misses the mark. Or, as it's commonly approached today, 
the historicist view, approaches the book through the lens of current events in our region of the world. Also problematic. The idealist view, it avoids some of the speculation of the other views, but it ignores that there's actual historical realities that are represented by the symbols of this book. Finally, the futurist view unhelpfully argues, like I said, that chapters 4 through 22 are yet to be fulfilled. And then this completely limits the application of the book to the people who read it first. But there's one thing the futurist view gets right, and that it's that God's purposes in history will be revealed in a final act that's yet to come, that last day of judgment, the consummation of the kingdom of God. So those are the four different views. This book's divisive, but it actually gets more divisive because there's one place in the Bible, if you go to all the Bible, where it describes a thousand-year reign of Christ. And guess where that is? Revelation chapter 20. There's three common views on what's called the millennium. The first view is the pre-millennial, premillennial view. It's that Christ will return before the millennium happens. So before this thousand-year reign, Christ will return. The second view is post-millennialism. You can probably guess what that means. Christ will return after the millennium. Then there's another view called amillennialism, and it, it describes the fact that the current age we live in, so between the resurrection and the second coming, that's the millennium. And Jesus already reigns as king from heaven now. Now, I'm not going to share which view I take right now. Maybe, perhaps, I'll even change my mind by the time we get there. But here's the important part. Sadly, many churches have split over their view of the millennium. Some churches even include it in their statement of faith, and they say, hey, if you want to be a member of this church, you have to hold to one of our views. And I think that in this church, we may disagree about the millennium. And I want to encourage you, church member, that's okay. There are some things that we should divide over. These are things of first importance, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. These are doctrines like the fact that Christ's death on the cross was a substitution in the place of sinners, or the doctrine of the physical resurrection of Christ. If anyone comes to this pulpit and says, Jesus didn't rise from the grave, you should either fire them or you should leave this church. They're that important. There are even other doctrines that are of secondary importance. These are things that we need to believe together to be a church, like baptism. You know, are we going to baptize babies, or are we not going to baptize babies? You kind of can't have it both ways. So it's okay to divide over that. But the millennium belongs in what's a third tier of importance, meaning that we can be members of the same church and just simply disagree over this. If you believe Jesus is coming back, and I believe Jesus is coming back, and maybe we're not sure exactly when that's going to happen, that's okay. So Revelation is a difficult book. It's a different book. It's a divisive book. But friends, let me tell you, as you'll see in just a second when I read it, that it's a beautiful book. It's a book from God to us. It's a book that we need today. So let me read Revelation 1, 1 through 8. <clears throat> the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Pray with me. Father, we ask for your wisdom as we read your word and as we seek to keep what is written in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, here's the heart of these eight verses. If you want to be blessed, then keep this book for God's glory. If you want to be blessed, then keep this book for God's glory. There's three points to this sermon. Here's the first one. Know the book. Know the book. Look at verse 1. The Greek word apocalypse, or as it's translated in English, revelation, is the very first word of the book. It's how we get the title. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that could mean it's the revela revelation about Jesus Christ, or it's given by Jesus Christ. It seems to be given by Jesus Christ, although it does center on Jesus Christ. As you look, it's from the Father who gave it to Jesus Christ, who gave it to his angel, who gave it to John. The word revelation literally means unveiling or uncovering. So think about a pot of soup on the cooker. Perhaps it's Wednesday night Bible study. You're at the Donald's house. They're providing a scrumptious meal. You walk into the home, and you immediately smell the rich food in the kitchen. You wonder, what's for dinner? It smells pretty good. You even guess some of the ingredients. But it's not until you walk into the kitchen, and you pull up the lid, and you look inside, that you see those ingredients exposed to your eyes. That's apocalypse, an uncovering. Revelation is a great unveiling through a series of apocalyptic visions. So notice those words in the first verse. Show and made it known. 
John is stealing this language from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. That's where God unveils the mysteries of King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and visions. So John uses this language from the very start of the book to show us that this book is symbolic in nature. Now, Revelation unveils, and it does so in two directions. So first, and what you're probably familiar with, is Revelation peers into the future. It peers into the future, and it shows us how God will consummate his kingdom. But Revelation also uncovers the present. So John says, if you look there, it's of the things that must soon take place. Now, some scholars read this and they say, well, look, it's been 2,000 years, so clearly John got it wrong. But we need to remember, as the book of Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, that the last days began with the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we are living in the last days right now. The only thing that's left to happen is the return of Jesus Christ. It's imminent. It will happen soon. So Revelation provides us visions of reality between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It reveals spiritual realities that are hidden to earthly eyes like ours. It shows us kind of what's behind the curtain when you look at the church's suffering and the church's persecution. It shows us that our true enemy is Satan and his servants. And as Revelation reveals these, thing to, these things to us, it encourages believers to be faithful in difficult times. And it also challenges believers with a different perspective, a heavenly one, on reality. It encourages them to live in light of the coming judgment. So Revelation is an apocalypse, but it's merged with prophecy. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. The word prophecy occurs seven times in this book. And you'll see a theme here as we work through even these first eight verses. The number seven is important. Now, when you think of prophecy, probably the first thing you think of is prediction. You know, what's going to happen in the future? But that's actually not the primary way the Bible uses the term. Prophets aren't fortune tellers. They're ones who declare, thus says the Lord. And they primarily discern the current situation by giving a divine disclosure. Now, that's the first thing they do. Secondarily, there are predictive elements. So even as we see in Revelation, there are some predictive elements about the future. But those predictive elements all, always have a present-day usage, meaning they always apply to us. They're not just for us to think about and go, huh, I wonder what's going to happen. They're for, for us to reflect on and live in light of today. Not only is Revelation prophecy, Revelation is filled with the Old Testament prophets. One author said, all of the prophets rendezvous in Revelation. Another author said, John paints an apocalypse and his palette is the Old Testament. There's 404 verses in Revelation. There's over 300 allusions to the Old Testament. 
And John alludes almost to every single book in the Old Testament. But he does have his favorites. Unfortunately, they're books that most of us stay away from. Ezekiel, Daniel, when's the last time anyone read Zephaniah, Zechariah, Isaiah, and Exodus. So that creates a problem for us today. Because when we read the book of Revelation, we kind of think, huh, when we read a symbol, we go, what does that mean today? But John is actually wanting us to first think, what does that mean from the Old Testament? We should be thinking of the Bible first. It's a prophecy. But lastly, it's also a letter. So look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So the author is John. There's good reason to think that it's the Apostle John. One, because a lot of the themes in the language are from the Gospel of John and 1 John. The other is because in church history, all the early church fathers said that the Apostle John wrote the letter. And he wrote it to seven real churches in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. We're going to learn about these churches in the coming weeks, but here's a few things that you need to know about them. Some of those churches were poor. They were persecuted for their faith by the oppressive government of Rome. So that's some of the churches. Others were wealthy. And they were actually tempted to compromise with Rome. But John's word to all of them is to remain faithful, to repent of sin, and to prepare for Christ's return. And while these are real churches, these seven churches existed, as we already saw with prophecy, the number seven is symbolic in the book of Revelation. So it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, even back to the first chapter of the Bible, where God created the world and everything in it in seven days. Seven in the Old Testament symbolizes completeness. So even as this is to seven churches, these seven churches, in fact, represent all churches throughout church history. And that means they even represent Covenant Hope Church. We need to know the book. That's the first point, friends. We need to know the book because it wasn't just written to those seven churches. It was written to us. Here's the second point. Receive the blessing. Receive the blessing. Do you want to be blessed? Then read the book of Revelation. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. The book begins with a blessing. If you flip all the way to chapter 22, the book ends with a curse. The blessing is for those who keep it. The curse in chapter 22 is for those who take away from it. And you won't be shocked probably to hear, guess how many blessings are in the book of Revelation? Seven. So if you've been avoiding this book, you've been missing out on a blessing you've been missing out on a complete blessing. Now, from the start of the book, John is very clear here. You need to know the book. But knowing is not enough. Revelation must be read. It must be heard. It must be kept. Sadly, so many have given so much attention to this book, but they seem to remain unaffected by it. This is especially ironic because it's one of the very books in the Bible that underlines to us and ex puts in exclamation points, you need to not just know it, you need to obey it. 
Revelation is not a crossword puzzle. It's not an almanac. Revelation is not a riddle. It's the final book of the scriptures that interprets our reality, reveals God's purposes, and encourages us to faithfully follow the Lamb, Jesus Christ, wherever he goes. The blessing in the book is not in decoding it. The blessing is in obeying it. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be blessed? How are you doing at reading and hearing and keeping the word? How's your reading? Think about the fact that we've been given God's word. The God of the universe has spoken to us. What a privilege. Are you saturating your mind and heart with God's true word? Are you reading Revelation? Let me encourage you, take 70 minutes, that's 10 minutes a day, and you can read the whole book of Revelation this week. Read through a Bible reading plan. You know, it's going to be confusing if you're reading Revelation, but you don't know the Old Testament. So a Bible reading plan can help you by forcing you to read those books of the Bible that you would just tend to avoid anyways. Memorize a verse a day. Meditate upon God's Word. Read the Bible with a friend. Read it on your lunch break. Read it right before you go to bed. Read it first thing when you wake up. Ask other church members, what are you reading in God's Word? One of the reasons this is so important is because the world that we live in every single day is providing for us an interpretive lens on how to see the world. It's full of temptations to compromise. And the book of Revelation reminds us further that there is a great enemy who's plotting to destroy us. So let's let God's word be our anchor to true reality. How's your hearing? Revelation was a letter that was to be read aloud in Sunday services. Are you preparing to hear God's word preached each week? Or perhaps gathering with the church is one of the dullest parts of your week. Now look, I know 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon is a difficult time to gather as a church. I personally don't prefer that time. I am grateful that we get to gather, though. Here's what I do. I drink a cup of coffee right before church so I can be attentive and awake to God's Word. You know, as pastors, we work hard to preach God's Word to you, and we expect you to work hard to listen to it. Not because we have anything to say, but because God has something to say. Now look, it's not easy to preach a sermon. Personally, I think it's harder to listen to a sermon. So, pray for a heart that's receptive to God's Word. If you're single, read the sermon passage with your housemates or with a friend before the service. If you're a dad, read the sermon passage with your family throughout the week. If you're a mom, read it with your kids. Kids in the, in the gathering, after you hear this sermon, ask your parents afterwards questions that you have about the sermon. Perhaps most importantly, though, how is your keeping? You know, a couple weeks ago, I asked a church member 
um, I said, hey, how can the elders be praying for you? And they said, pray that I would apply what I hear in the sermon each week. That is a good prayer. That's exactly right. The point's not just to sit here and to go, oh, that was interesting. Okay, I'm just going to move on with my week. The point is to apply it to your life. Friends, i got to ask you, is God's word changing you? Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ? Are you walking in the Spirit? Are you putting to death the desires of the flesh? Or is there an area of your life that's actually been off limits to the rule of God's Word? Let's pray for our church that we would be a church that's quick to obey God's Word. There is a blessing for those who obey. And look at the end of verse 3. Notice the grounds for John's blessing. For the time is near. John's concerned about the time. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that the time is near. He's talking about that day when Christ will return. You're going to give an account on that day. Friend, if you're not a Christian, are you ready for that day? And church, the time is near. What good news for us. The time is near. Jesus will return soon. Now, this is often not our perspective, is it? Often we live like tomorrow is promised. We already have plans for Monday. We even live like the best years of our life are ahead of us. But who knows what tomorrow will bring? There's only one thing that's certain that we need to have on our radar, and it's that the time is near. Jesus will return. That's where we need to fix our eyes, on that horizon, that day when Christ will return. So there's a blessing for reading and hearing and keeping. John goes on to say in verses 4 and 5 that there's grace and peace to be received from God. Look at these amazing verses. First, John mentions the Father. He says, Him who is and who was and is to come. Then he mentions the Spirit. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Finally, he mentions the Son. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. This is the only place in the New Testament where that, that blessing that the author gives to the reader is from our triune God. Usually it's the Father and the Son. Here we have the Spirit too. John is reminding us that God the Father is that one who declared to Moses, I am who I am. He has always been. He reminds us of the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now we know that this is from the Holy Spirit because there's nowhere in the New Testament where grace and peace come from a human being. They always come from God. And then we get this threefold description of Jesus Christ. Jesus was faithful to his Father. He witnessed even in the face of death on a cross. And then when he died, he was the firstborn of the dead because of his resurrection. And then after his resurrection, he ascended to the Father's throne where he rules 
over all the kings of the earth. Or as we sang earlier, God is holy, holy, holy. Merciful and mighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Church, this is our God. And he gives us, notice what it says, grace. Did you come to church needing grace this afternoon? Grace is that favor that we don't deserve. He gives us peace. Though we were enemies, we are reconciled to God. Church, we need to know the book. We need to receive the blessing, our last point, perhaps the most important reason to read this book. We need to worship the king. Worship the king. Ultimately, this book was written so that we would bow our knees before God in worship. And I pray that God would move you to worship as we consider these remaining verses. Worship the king. Worship the king who reigns. We've already seen that. Jesus Christ is the ruler of kings on earth. He's like a president that's been voted in, but not yet sworn into office. Meaning he reigns, his reign has begun, but it's not yet fully consummated. He reigns now, but when he returns, his reign will be final and forever. And he reigns over all. Proverbs says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Friends, Jesus is king over all the rulers of the earth. He's king over Vladimir Putin of Russia. Jesus is king over Joe Biden of America. He's king over Prime Minister Modi of India. Jesus is king over His Highness Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nayan of the UAE. He's king over all. And not just on earth. He's king over all heavenly authorities and powers. There is a cosmic battle between God and Satan. That's part of what this book is about. But you need to know that the victory's already been won. Jesus crushed Satan and he bound him at the cross. That's finished. Satan cannot even breathe without permission from Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's worship that king. The king who reigns over every square inch of this universe. And worship the king who bled. Look at verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Do you know of any king that loves their enemies? Do you know of any king that sheds his own blood for his enemies? Friends, that's Jesus Christ. Church, remember your king is the one who bled for you. He bled for you. Because of our sin, we deserved God's wrath, but Jesus Christ took God's wrath in our place on the cross. Isn't that what we sang about earlier? See the king who wears a crown, one made of shame and splinters the sacrifice 
for ruined man, the substitute for sinners. As earth is stained with royal blood and quakes with love and fury, he breathes his last. He bows his head, the king in all his beauty. Church, that's our beautiful king. The king who bled. And because he bled, brothers and sisters, we are no longer slaves to sin. Perhaps you came into church this afternoon struggling with sin. Maybe you're even ashamed that you fell into temptation once again. You feel like you're fighting a losing battle. Satan tempts you to despair. Where should you look, friend? Look at verse 5. He loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. If you know you need a Savior, He came for you, for sinners. And today we're freed from the power of sin because of what Christ did, but one day is coming where we will be free from the very presence of sin. Friends, look to that day. And his death transformed us from enemies to verse 6, to a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Friends, the church is not a place for perfect people. If you came here and you're perfect, I'm sorry. This is not the church for you. It's a gathering of sinners who know that they need the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ. You want to encourage someone today? Let me encourage you. After the service, tell someone here how you need the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ. That will encourage them. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that we as a church are a people that is open and honest about our need for Jesus Christ. Worship the King who reigns. Worship the King who bled. Worship the King who is coming. Look at verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. It's funny, John jolts us awake in verse 7. Behold, listen up. And what does he want to tell us? Jesus is coming back. Now John, here in verse 7, he combines two, even three passages. Daniel 7.13, Zechariah 12.10, which we read earlier in our service. Even, it seems, Genesis 12, verse 3. So Daniel says, Behold the clouds of heaven, there come one like a son of man. And Zechariah 12 says, as we read it, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And Genesis 12.3 talks about all the tribes of the earth. What's John saying by throwing these three verses together for us? In a way, he's saying that all of humanity has rejected Jesus Christ. In a way, he's saying that all of us have pierced Jesus Christ. But John applies this in two ways. 
There are some who will see Jesus on that last day, and they've mourned of their sin. They've repented. They're going to be saved. In many ways, that's what we just read in verses 5 and 6. But there's others, verse 7, who will see Jesus on that day, and they will wail in judgment, for they will realize that it is too late. Seven times in Revelation, Jesus himself declares, I am coming. He's coming. And for Christians, that's a day that brings us hope. Justice is coming. Evil, vanquish. We will be vindicated. But if you're not a Christian, the coming of Christ is a warning to you. You have pierced him, he is coming. Friend, today is the day of repentance. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Because right now, today, he gladly welcomes all enemies. And he gives them grace and peace. But friend, if you wait till that day when he comes, there will only be judgment. It's amazing how John responds to both the salvation of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked at the end of verse 7. Look there, he says, Even so, Amen. And church, we too say, Amen. May God's will be done. Friends, Revelation was written so we'd worship the King, the King who reigns, the king who bled, the king who will come again. And as we conclude, consider that last verse, verse 8. There's only two times in the book of Revelation that the Lord God himself speaks to the reader. This is the first time. The last time is at the end of the book. What does he say? What does God himself want to say to us? What do we need to hear? He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Church, we need the book of Revelation to reorient us to what's real. This is reality. Sometimes life feels chaotic. It feels like it's spinning out of control it feels like as Christians we're losing. Then God speaks to us in Revelation and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He reigns over history from beginning to end. That means everything in between. Church, that means he reigns over your Monday to your Sunday. He reigns over your birth to your grave. God says to us, I am he who is and who was and who is to come. Now he repeats that from verse 4, because I guess we need to read it again. He's reminding us there's not a chance that history will slip out of his control. There's not a moment that he's not been sovereign over all. Friend, there's not a second of your life that God's been absent. He says to us, I am the Almighty. 
Seven times in the book of Revelation, God says he's the Almighty. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of angel armies. His power and his might is unmatched. Yes, there is a cosmic battle happening right now as we speak. But his plans and his purposes cannot be thwarted. They can't be thwarted by Satan or by you or by me. So church, whatever your situation, whatever your circumstance that you're in right now, you need to remember that he is the Almighty. This is our God. We've heard the book. Now we must keep it. And we'll be blessed. Let's pray. Lord God, we glorify your name, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as we've read your word, and we've heard your word, Help us to go from this place and keep your word. In Jesus' name, amen.